Hello and welcome to a positive podcast. A Freilchen Hanukkah, a happy Hanukkah to all my listeners. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or a family member, a special occasion, or just because you love this podcast, you can reach out to me through my website, A Positive Coach, or email me directly at razel at jewishpeabody.com. If you would like to set up a free session with me to hear about positive coaching, what it is, and why it might be a good fit for you, please check out my website or reach out through Instagram at apositivecoach.com. Thank you for listening. And for those of you who take the time to email me and share how much you gain from this podcast, it really means a lot. So let's get right into today's episode, episode number 41. Today's episode is a conversation with a wonderful man, Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson. In this podcast, I really try hard to bring an array of topics that will be of an interest to you, my listener. And today's conversation does that, I think, quite well. It discusses positive theology and positive psychology. And Rabbi Kalmanson, he's a brilliant man who has the gift and the ability to express himself in a clear and interesting manner. And I think you're going to find this episode to be insightful and inspiring. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Thank you so much, Rabbi Kalmanson, for being here today. You know, I had the honor to attend a lecture or two of yours at the July conference, or actually was August at the JLI conference. And I approached Rabbi Kalmanson and I asked you then if you would be willing to come onto my podcast and you were gracious enough to say yes. So I'm very grateful for you for taking time from your busy schedule to meet with me. I have read your book, The Positivity Bias, when it came out a few years ago, and I found it to be very interesting and insightful. And at that same time, I was studying positive psychology. As I was studying for this, the same time your book was coming out, and it was so fascinating to see so many connections between what I was learning and what I had studied in Chassidus, and it was showing up in the teachings of Martin Zeligman in positive psychology. It was a fascinating connection. If somebody who's listening hasn't yet read the book, Positivity Bias, I would strongly encourage you to go out there and read this book. It's on, available on Amazon. It's quite fascinating. So I want to begin with one question that I was thinking about as I was reading your book. What was it that inspired you to seek and find information on this topic? Why did you want to write this book? What was your impetus or to go ahead and spend so many hours researching, so much time invested in putting out this, this book? Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Thank and, you. Um, actually, let me start by saying you mentioned positive psychology and Martin Seligman. First of all, um, congratulations for being certified. It's an incredible field of uh, discovery, but also healing. And it's, it's actually so in line with the Rebbe's thinking because the Rebbe was very much about preemptive healing, not just reactive healing. And in fact, there's an entire chapter I could not get into the book because at the end it was too big and maybe there's room for a follow-up all about this particular way of thinking. And it was going to be titled Positive Psychology. Because <laughs> there are many, many instances where the Rebbe spoke about the concept, at least, of positive psychology, where instead of focusing exclusively on trying to understand the underlying causes and properties of ill mental health, positive psychology tries to tries to strengthen mental health preemptively to ensure that an individual's um, well-being is at their highest and best levels. But let me just say that when I reached out to Martin Seligman for a blurb, he was actually really um, thoughtful and very kind. And he immediately responded. 
And I have to tell you, over the past three years, there have been multiple occasions where he has been mentoring students in his programming, and he's put us together and he's told them, read Positivity Bias, be in touch with Reverend Mendel, because he has done a lot of research on this from a spiritual angle. So I think that's pretty incredible because he's one of the great authorities, uh, if not the greatest authority on positive psychology. Um, I thought you'd find that interesting because you you know what yes, that means. Definitely. You understand the reference better than many. Um, yeah. In terms of what motivated the book, so it's a great question. It actually started off <laughs> with an idea for a different book that was focused exclusively on Torah passages, which, which um, basically recount events, episodes, stories, and and and. Uh, and characters that have appeared in classic Jewish literature as very villainous or very iniquitous and wicked for literally millennia. And what I noticed as a rabbinic student, maybe when I was 15, 16, 17, and began to explore the Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings in greater depth, and specifically his commentary on Torah, I began to see that a pattern emerged, a, a pattern whereby in each and every one of those circumstances, or dealing with each one of those characters, the Rebbe made a very concerted effort to shine a light on a positive aspect of that individual or that event. And I'm talking about some of the greatest um, villains, some of the greatest sins. I'm talking about the sin of the, you know, Adam eating from the, the from the tree of knowledge, from the tree. I'm talking about the sin of the spies. I'm talking about the sin of the golden calf. Um, the Rebbe has a letter where he 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 deals with, you know, all those people who in classic Judaism are excommunicated from a portion in the world to come. And the Rebbe finds a very radically redemptive way to rehabilitate them. And so I began to notice this pattern and, I, and it was so moving and it touched such a deep chord in me that I decided it's one of those things I can't just keep to myself. I have to share. And, you know, I, I, I wish on all of your listeners that they encounter some area of Torah or knowledge or wisdom that touches them so deeply that they say to themselves, I cannot hold this, keep this to myself. I must share it with the wider world. And I imagine that that actually this podcast is an expression of that to some extent. You have your light and your wisdom and your life experience, and you can't just keep it to yourself. You need to share that with the wider world because there's so much they can benefit and be enriched through that. So that's really where it started. Specifically, there's one uh, example called, um, I, I don't want to go into too much detail because it will take too much time, but Miriam Basbilga, there was a particular woman in the Talmud who essentially converted out of Judaism and married a vicious anti-Semite who was part of the regime that eventually um, destroyed the Holy Temple and facilitated uh, the exile of the Jewish people from our land and during that whole fiasco, while the temple is burning, she took her sandal off, she marched towards the, 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 the altar, and she beat the altar in a flagrant act of uh, disrespect, and she called out somewhat, you would think cynically, wolf, wolf, you eat, um, you know, you eat the offerings of the Jewish people, but you're not there for them in their time of need. Now, one way of reading that, of course, and the way it has been read is that she was being very cynical and she was basically saying, this is all a bunch of nonsense, you know? This altar, which was meant to be a symbol of, 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 uh, of a divine blessing um, in, in the Jewish people's lives is clearly ineffective 
as 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 can be discerned from the the flames that are that are con literally consuming the temple in this moment and the utter humiliation degradation dehumanization of the very people it was meant to serve and so you could see her as saying all of this is nonsense and justifying her wicked um choices to that point but the the rebbe in, an, in to my mind one of the most moving um talks and there's a video of this and um, the Rebbe spoke on the occasion of his mother's yard site, the sixth of Tishrei, um, approaches this piece of Talmud and does what I would call reconstructive surgery, essentially shining an inner light on this passage, after which, you know, you cannot read it the same again. And essentially what the Rebbe says is that rather than see it as an act of cynicism, one should actually see it as an act of profound, profound altruism and a profound compassion and empathy. Here's a woman who consciously chose a life very different to the rest of her people. And one that actually um, was in tremendous conflict with their well-being. And yet when push comes to shove, you know, in the in the critical moments when she's um, you know, sort of participating in this, in this, in this uh, historic moment, watershed moment, what comes out of her when she's standing in the presence? of the altar is her deep, deep concern for her fellow brothers and sisters. And it's a challenge to God in what you could only call holy chutzpah, where she says to Hashem, you know, to the contrary, your people were there for you. They've come religiously and they've been so devoted. How can you allow this to happen? And so it's actually in a certain sense, an accusation, a noble act. It's in the spirit and the Rebbe then re repaints or recasts Miriam Vaspilgo almost in the same spirit of our great ancestors, the patriarchs and matriarchs, who were willing to take on God Almighty, to, to, you know, for the well-being of their fellow, uh, you know, their fellow human beings or Jewish people, be it Moshe, be it Avraham in these portions, etc. So when I saw that, I was just, it's just mind-blowing. Um, there's actually a fascinating follow-up to that, where people challenged the Rebbe and said, you know, you've gone way too far on this occasion. And at the retreat, I, wow. gave, a, I gave a whole talk on this particular point, but the, 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 you know, they said this is too much, too much, because the Talmud actually says, woe is to the wicked person, woe is to their neighbor, um, referring to the neighbors of Miriam and how they could have been negatively affected. And so the Talmud seems to have passed the verdict. She was absolutely wicked and there's no room for redemption. Um, but then the Rebbe uses a spin that only the Rebbe would use, which is what's the ultimate merit and blessing in life, right? To, to, be, to, to, to be a contributor of perpetual eternal value, blessing, and light to the universe. And what's the best way to do that is to, is to be the source of, an, of a positive, instructive lesson for all of mankind for all of time. So the Rebbe says, if the Talmud derives from here, woe is to a wicked person and woe is to their neighbor from Miriam, it must mean that Miriam had a tremendous merit for which she was chosen to be the, the, the poster girl or the source text for a lesson as empowering and as, as, as insightful as woe is to a wicked person, woe is to their neighbor. It's just a radical way of like, Thank you know, you. Taking, taking the very breakage and finding within it um, a tremendous, um, tremendous value. So the Rebbe basically um, said, I don't need to justify myself for being Malamed's chus, for being favorable, because the Mishnah says, have done is kal adam one should, one should extend that courtesy to every human being. But then the Rebbe does something that, that I did not include in the book because I did not feel at the time that this particular theme could, could be well received by the widest audience possible. And I think it's very important as a writer, and I discussed it with the publisher, 
that when you write, you have to take into account the widest possible audience. But the Rebbe draws on something very mystical. And I and I'm because the, you know, I didn't know if the readership would be mystically inclined to this extent, I left it out. But there is room for, to, to include it potentially in a follow-up. And what, what, what did the Rebbe say? The Rebbe then said a story. It seemed perhaps a little bit random because the Rebbe did not conclude the story with the moral of the story. He just said the story. And the story is that in the times of the Alta Rebbe, they brought um, an individual before him while he was studying with his inner course, inner circle of students. They brought an individual who was possessed by what some call a dibuk. Um, it's basically a soul from, from, from the ether from, a, from you know that's no longer in this world that for a variety of reasons can become attached to a living person. And there's a whole spiritual science to, if you will, exorcising that particular soul. In this particular case, the Alter Rebbe said a Torah. He shared an idea from Torah. He said that back in time, there was a particular prophet who was murdered. It's Chayyaw Anavi. He was murdered by certain individuals in cold blood. And the Alter Rebbe said, why would these people murder Zechariah? And he answered, he said, because we know in the laws of prophecy that if a negative prophecy, if a prophet sees a negative prophecy but does not articulate it or vocalize it or bring it into this universe through speech, it can be rescinded. However, the moment the prophet actually speaks it, he actually, as it were, speaks it into being. And it must happen on some level in this world, in this universe. And so the Alter Rebbe said that though those who took the life of Zechariah actually did so because he was about to prophesy about the destruction of the temple. And they wanted to ensure that that prophecy not need to be manifest in this world. And this was a tremendous act, therefore, of self-sacrifice, if you think about it, because they were willing to give up their lives, but also their legacy. They'd been tainted for thousands of years until the Alta Rebbe came around and provided this, again, radically redemptive way of seeing these individuals and exposing such a noble intention and such an altruism that very few people would, would have the courage and the character to engage with. Taking a, the absolute ultimate Russia and transforming them on some level, let me stress, into at least intentionally tzaddikim, tzidkus. And let's be clear that, um, I'll get to this in a moment, that, you know, that good intentions don't justify bad actions. You know, taking the life was not theirs to do. And, and therefore on that level, they deserve to be punished. But what the, the Rebbe managed to do was, was shine a light on their intention. And in so doing, amazingly, at that moment, though the soul of the Dibuk um, left that individual. And Alter Rebbe then turned to the students and he actually explicitly clarified the soul that had attached itself to this individual was the soul of one of the murderers. And that soul, we know a little bit about um, what's called Dibuk or Ibor, Neshamis, like these, they've done something so wicked in this world that they're not even capable of beginning their healing process through Gehenna and through the purgatory, which is why they're essentially trapped and held captive in this limbo state. They cannot even begin their healing. And, and, and this soul was one such soul, and so it wanders the hallways of heaven, so to speak. And at times it attaches itself to someone in this world, and that's what happened here. And only through sharing this limutzchus, the Alter Rebbe says, was I able to provide it enough merit to allow it to enter Gehenim to begin its healing process and eventually move on you know, to, to, to higher realms um, as, as such. 
So the Rebbe finishes this story, which in itself is a wild story. And maybe now you can see why I, I didn't include it. And then the Rebbe said, and that was it. Now, anyone with, you know, any modicum of intelligence sitting in the audience would obviously derive from this, that the Rebbe shared that story specifically then as a response and in context of, of responding to those who had criticized them for giving a limit to Miriam Masbilga, at least again, to my mind, it seems obvious as a way of saying that what you thought was mere mental gymnastics and some maybe perhaps poetic, poetic license was in fact me engaging on one of the most daring rescue missions possible, you know? And the way I put it, in, the way I put it is that the Rebbe was, was committed to what I call intergenerational Avas Yisrael and Pidyon Shvuyim, right? Not just to those who lived in his time, but to every soul who had ever lived, as it were, walking those hallways and gently and kindly rehabilitating those souls and allowing them to begin their healing process. And again, I, if they, that's not mind-blowing, I don't know what is. I find that very, very, very moving. So that's where it all began. I'll interject. So that's it's so powerful. Like, as I listen to that, maybe that's why even today, after his passing of so many years, you see people who have never met the Rebbe and who have never, you know, really grew up with any of that chassidus are connecting in such a deep, deep way and so life-changing because the Rebbe, like you said, was, as you, what was the term you used? Intergenerational? Amos Yisrael and Pidyan I love it. Uh, that's so, it so helps clarify a lot of things. Continue. Yeah, so as a, so I, that really moved me. I really wanted to, you know, again, I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep it to myself. And literally as a Bach, when I would be, you know, eating at different Shabbos tables or whenever I went to a Shliach, I had began to collect beautiful stories of the Rebbe or examples like this. And that would be my theme. That would be my go-to theme. And because the, the underlying message is so redemptive and so powerful, because we all have brokenness, we all have shadow, we all have aspects where we've, we've made poor choices and we've acted not in sync or in accordance with our highest ideals. And so sometimes we can fall into the trap of defining ourselves by those mistakes. And this message is, is, says to the contrary, if you can expose the inner core goodness that is within yourself, and if you can self-identify from that place of spiritual majesty, innocence, and strength, then you can always, at all times, within your capacity, within your capability, you can activate that and begin to live from that vantage point and recognize that everything else really was superficial and imported and the result of you know, the wear and tear of physical existence. Again, to be very clear, this doesn't justify the things we do that aren't correct. This doesn't justify the actions of so many of those characters. Right. The reality is Korach rebelled and he was punished for the rebellion. But in the Rebbe's books, he was a man who was ahead of his times. He was envisioning a messianic world order. And that's where he came from. And there are other ways the Rebbe interprets it equally redemptive. So the way I put it is, you know, there's a great saying I once came across that people tend to judge themselves by their intentions and other people by their actions. Or people tend right. to judge others by their actions and themselves by their intentions. And I think this theme reveals how the Rebbe went from character to character, and instead of merely judging them by their actions, began to give us some understanding of their intentions. And then, and here's something incredible, suddenly the reason these stories are included in the Torah is not only to teach us how not to behave, but there's actually something deeply valuable and instructive that we can take from them for how to behave in a positive manner. 
There's something we can learn from the generation of the spies, according to Hasidus, and that is to carve out time each day to live an idyllic desert-like existence, completely detached from the material distractions and distortions and, uh, of daily life. So suddenly they're not just individuals who are vilified and we're never meant to learn anything from them positively, but suddenly we can take something very meaningful from them. So that's where it all began. And then, um, you know, I, <laughs> my formal English education ended in fourth grade in the wonderful New Haven Hebrew Day School. At that point, I traveled to Crown Heights weekly and I stayed in, uh, I stayed in Crown Heights and I went to Alatera and a, a host of other wonderful um, you know, uh, high-level chinuch, eventually Brewa, and then, uh, you know, shlichus in Australia. And the reality is that I felt that my English needed a little brushing up, to put it mildly. And so I, I hired a tutor. I hired someone who was a professional, you know, English teacher. I'd go to their house once a week or twice a week. And that began the journey of trying to learn how the skill of writing. And, you know, it's, the, it's an ongoing journey. And, uh, and that's when I began to enter that sort of, you know, space of writing. Um, I would never have come to it otherwise. So I, I really attribute this theme to, 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 to bringing me into, um, you know, a certain aspect, at least of my work, which is trying to take spiritual ideas and share them with the widest audience. Pretty interesting. It's so fascinating what you shared. As you were saying, what came up for me is this idea that you're, you're this picture that you're painting of the Rebbe is like such a the Rebbe was trying to show us like you can validate and understand somebody and not at the same time condone their behavior, exactly. it, which, can, which could be, which feels almost like uh, impossible, like it is in, in relationships and marriage and with our children. And that same theme is something that we all struggle with. And the Rebbe was showing us here by example, how to do this. Exactly. That's actually very brilliantly said. That's exactly right. And in today's world of healing, we're now much, much more conscious of this, like holding multiple things at once, right? You know, but, but things could be true at the same time. Exactly. We did used to live in more of a black and white world order. And now I think there's a lot more room for nuance and for, again, a more all-encompassing or multi-encompassing perspective. It's exactly right. And I think that's that you touched on, you hit the nail on the head. The Rebbe was doing more than just writing or teaching Torah. The Rebbe was essentially educating a generation. The Rebbe was essentially teaching us through these texts, which in my view served as essentially a live exercise in, in the Rebbe's lab, lab of positivity, every Shabbos and, and multiple times in the week. And all of that, that was the Rebbe saying to the community, come, let me welcome you into, into a world. Of, let me share with you a different way of seeing things. And I think that's why you find, and people, people you know, touch on this. And you know, Chabad is known for, for being non-judgmental. By the way, where does that come from? You can't just raise a generation of non-judgmental people. It doesn't work, especially religious people. I'm sorry to be so candid, but religious right. people by nature, because they are because they are religious, they are constantly judging. They're constantly evaluating, they're discerning, they're dissecting, they're weighing right, wrong. That's one of the primary engines or drivers in their life. So, so how do you take someone who's so focused on the, in this case, what I call like a noble type of discernment or judgment, and then tell them, shut that off when it comes to somebody else. <laughs> you know, if a person's like yeah. a, you know, you know, you know, uh, live and let live mindset, very often that everything is more blessé, everything's more, you know, everything goes, but that's not what the religious community, not everything goes. So the rebel was taking 
this a group it doesn't happen you don't just become non-judgmental it's 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 an, it's a, it's, an, it's a paradox it's a paradoxical way of of living because the thing that matters so much to you when it comes to someone who matters so much to you somehow you have to have the capacity to really give them the space to find their own way and and it, and it has to somehow and all of that has to come from a loving place and these are very, very complex things. So, uh, so it doesn't just happen. So non-judgmentalism. And then you have other aspects that Hasidim and Shluchim are known for. Less spoken of, but I think of tremendously equal power is positivity. Like, you, you, know, you know, it's not so, you know, when people describe Shluchim, what I hoped with positivity bias was to actually expose something that's so obvious. But another thing that Shluchim should be called, our, our people are incredibly optimistic and positive. When you walk into Chabad House, what are some of the words that you should use to describe it? Is uplifting, positive, um, and 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 optimistic. When you leave, you leave with more hope. You leave with more with more clarity. You leave with with a greater sense of of connection to a higher a higher worldview. All of that comes from somewhere. It comes from a curriculum of thinking, and that curriculum of thinking is so meticulous. It's so it's it's so breathtaking, and it's it's so it's so ordered. It's so organized. And, and that's what I hoped to capture in the book, Positivity Bias. So it's just a, one sample of that way of thinking. So by the way, so the, so book, started off with, the book started off with, with thoughts on, you know, I wanted to do it on Torah, just examples in Torah. And I had like 90 or hundred samples of such of, of talks of the Rebbe on these. And then over the years, it just, I started to see that this isn't just about the Rebbe's view on Torah. This is really vast. It's, it's, it's not a detail. It's actually a foundational principle. And from there, everything emerges. And that's when the, the idea to broaden the scope, um, you know, and then over the years, I, I collected a lot of material and then, and then you know, put it together in the book. I, I'm, I'm wondering about something. I'm curious your thought on this. The Rebbe spoke so passionately about Mashiach, Geula. And for me, when I heard you speaking about this, you know, how holding these two truths at the same time the Rebbe was able to do, I wonder, is it, isn't that like living with Geula? The Rebbe was trying to show us that we could live with Mashiach. Like we have to bring the Geula. We have to bring Mashiach into our life. And when we're able to validate somebody, understand them, see them where they're at and see their good, the goodness and their intention, and even without condoning their behavior, that is like living with Mashiach. I wonder, because these were the passions of the Rebbe. Like if I were to say it, growing up, I heard the Rebbe talking and I grew up with all these sikhas and everything, even though I didn't understand constantly, but I heard Mashiach, I heard Geula, and I heard all these positive way of thinking. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's actually a very good point that, that you know, you know, th there were certain things Rebbe spoke about that were very much sort of time specific, right? Like Miyuhudi and, you know, moment, you know, there were different, but, but then you have things that the Rebbe spoke about always. And they, they sort of, you know, from our limited perspective, they sort of encapsulate you know, a constant, and 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 Mashiach was definitely one of those. I mean, that was the major thrust. That was the that was also foundational. Um, how so? So definitely the idea of 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 what is Mashiach? Mashiach really, like we know, the whole the Rebbe spoke so often about the idea of Geula and Goyla that the very word for redemption actually is made of the same letters of exile. It's just that there's an added Aleph. Aleph always represents the oneness, the infinite. You know, the the source of all. And, and also light, oir is aleph. And so it's exactly as you say, you could look at goyla and specifically now in this context, interpersonally or even intrapersonally in relationships, you could look at, 
You can look at the captive part of people, the part of people that's stuck in exile, right? The part of them that's attached to certain thoughts, speech, and behavioral patterns that are destructive. And you can define them as goyla, as people who are fundamentally held captive to their lower appetites. Or you can take the aleph and you can shine that and you can reveal through this process of geula, of redemption, the holy noble point of oneness within each of them. Like the, by the way, it's very connected to the Haggadah. There's a beautiful teaching of the Rebbe. It says, Echad Chacham, Echad Rasha, Echad Tam, Echad Sheni Delishal, which um, grammatically, you know, is redundant. You, sh you should just say, you could just say, there is one Rasha, you know, um, there's one Chacham, Rasha, Tam, Eni Delishal. So why say Echad preceding each one of these characters? Why repeat, there is one of this, one of this, one of this. So the Rebbe explains it is exactly what we're saying is that that the, what the Haggadah is trying to teach us is to discover the echad within, the, the, the echad within the Russia, the, the same echad that's in the Chacham exists within all four. But anyways, that was a little bit of a tangent. So then you talk about like the positivity bias as it pertains to Geula, that's just absolutely mind-blowing. That's the last chapter in the book of where our world is heading. And I think that has been very resonant with people. I've, I've, over COVID, I spoke maybe a hundred times in, in communities around the world. And I think that sense, that, that perspective was also a constant hallmark of the Rebbe's leadership. The idea of always, always staying true to the narrative, the narrative, the divine narrative, because we live in a world where there's all, so many narratives and our choice is which narrative to adapt. It's as simple as that. And by the way, there's a whole, there's a lot of healing that relates to narrative, right? And through switching narrative, so much of our, our reactions and, 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 uh, so much of our inner world and equilibrium change. But so there's a divine narrative. The divine narrative is that the world is, 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 is the arc of history bends forward, upward and onward. And, you know, to me, at least, it's, it's a fascinating thing to, to see how the Rebbe doesn't deal with the, the highs of life, but the lows of life and history. And again, in so many instances, from personal, when the Rebbe had a heart attack, the Rebbe managed to find a way. It's actually really related to the era, uh, the era of COVID because it was Matzah Yamtif, and the doctors allowed the Rebbe to speak through a, through a hookup, through a, uh, you know, I guess, yeah, the precursor to what today we know as, uh, you know, the yeah. internet and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and Zoom. And the Rebbe said then something really interesting. The Rebbe said that you would you would think that we have actually experienced a Yerida because under normal circumstances, we would be able to be gathered in one space, interacting in person. And the Rebbe said that actually there is a greater benefit that is caused through the circumstances that have brought us to this state, which is that so many more people could be connected to this moment from around the world, even you know those who under normal circumstances could not be physically present. Just an incredible example. The Rebbe just had a heart attack. I mean, and it was a very severe one. And, and you would, anyone would say this is a setback. And so the Rebbe is saying, the Rebbe is teaching the Hasidim how he thinks. It's an amazing thing. He's saying, look, let me share with you. I'm not going to keep this to myself. I'm going to share with you because I want you to understand that this is the way a Hasid thinks. This is the way Hasidists teach us to think. What is the, what, from the, from the divine point of view, what possible, what possible advantage has Hashem created through circumstances? And the Rebbe basically said something that I think was so relevant during COVID, right? For, you know, that, that for many shluchim at least, 
the reach was able to be wider. And, and you know, there is something about an in-person event. There's no question. And thankfully, we're back there. But there are people who wouldn't attend an in-person event, but they did listen. And I, can, I can't tell you the amount of feedback I got from people who I, I've never, I haven't had the ability to interact with in person, but said, you know, in the safety of my home, I felt, I felt like I able could. Able to come. So that's just one way that one example, the Rebbe in real time, dissecting and disseminating an amazing insight into his own personal circumstances. And there are so, so many examples. Another very important theme is that whenever the Rebbe experienced personal loss, you always see immediately the Rebbe attaches it to some constructive, positive new initiative. So, in, you know, in honor of his mother's passing, he inaugurated the Rashi Sichas, a novel way of, of looking at Rashi. It's during his father's, you know, um, passing that period, the Rebbe in, introduced higher learning um, for, for, for older, for the elderly. I mean, that was literally the Rebbe's reaction to the loss of his father. And then you have, of course, the classic example of the Rebbetzin, the Rebbe's best friend and confidant. And, you know, there's no one like the Rebbetzin. And, and, and that loss was devastating. And we, we, you can see it visibly um, at the pictures of the Leviah. And, and if you read the accounts of like Dr. Ira Weiss, and others, it's they spell out specifically, clearly how impactful that event was, and and what does the Rebbe do on the Rebbetzin's birthday? That that you know the Rebbe inaugurates a birthday campaign. The Rebbe took a moment, which was probably, I mean, who knows, but one of the most disruptive, catastrophic, colossal loss in his life and 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 the Rebbe turned it into the impetus for the greatest celebration of life right bringing to light and and really jump-starting an amazing initiative that was not revealed to that point you have to we have to stop and and, and appreciate and transforming birthdays into what it is today which is an incredibly momentous occasion for for for, for, for people around the world so once you see that once you expose that you notice it everywhere. It's just everywhere. Um, yeah, so I, to, to Mashiach, that's like the ultimate example, right? And the Rebbe saw it in so many aspects of the world, in the rise of feminism, right? The Rebbe saw the, 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 the beginning stirrings of the prophecy that Nekeva to Sevevgever and Messianic times, the feminine will rise above the masculine, et cetera, et cetera. And you saw it also during the you know, 60s, the flower power movement, where essentially organized religion was disintegrating because all the systems of hierarchy um, were, were being dismantled and were being really essentially blown up. And all, you know, you know, all individuals in positions of power, but specifically within the religious community, clergy, spiritual leaders, and so forth, bemoaned this terrible loss and saw it as a as 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 a as a point beyond which there was no return, and they felt that that would be the beginning of the end. And there's a whole chapter on this. You know, it's it's absolutely mind blowing how the Rebbe said to the contrary, this is the beginnings of a new era of what we call today authenticity. It's incredible. The Rebbe said these are young people fighting back against the, the you know fighting back against the 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 banal. Um, superficiality of conformity and, and the living lives that they don't want that are thrust upon them by others. And also the Rebbe said, they're fighting against mediocrity. And that's really what it is. Judaism at that time was really a very much a mediocre existence. It was like, 
you know, it was a social thing. And the kids, they don't have patience for social Judaism. That's not what they want. They want authentic spiritual Judaism. And it's just, it's incredible to know, you know, there was a very famous rabbi from, from the UK. Sadly, he passed um, not long ago. And he was once giving a lecture and he was bemoaning the fact that there's, that the middle, the there used to be a middle road to and he was bemoaning the fact that that mill group is shrinking and Jews are either going to the right and becoming orthodox or religious, or they're going to the left and they're becoming unaffiliated or assimilated. And I actually thought about it and I, I actually was tempted to write an op-ed reacting to that thought and, and very much in the spirit of the Rebbe's teaching suggests very much to the contrary. Today, younger people are not gonna be in the middle. They're not gonna be in the middle. They're going to go to the right or to the left for the exact same reason, because the middle is not tenable, because it's not authentic, because it's it's superficial and it's shallow. And that's not what they need. And that's not what they want. Their souls are yearning for authenticity and they're ready to make the, 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 the choices and the compromises necessary to live fully inhabiting that authenticity. And that's why they're going to the right, because they want something more or to the left, because they feel like Judaism doesn't have that to offer. So they say, why would I waste my time with this? Again, another incredible example of where the Rebbe stood apart and stood up and called out and exposed and revealed an incredible momentum, an incredible new, it's really a new era. And I'd say that that's, that's uh, now just to conclude with that note, this is something that I learned from Rabbi Yossi Jacobson, who, who, who I admire and respect immensely. And we've had the opportunity to to engage and to talk uh, at different forums. And uh, we were together at an event in LA and he took this idea one step further. And I'm, I'm in the process of studying this more because it's just so radically um, uh, redemptive. And he was saying that, that our generation, especially young people are dealing now more than ever before with, you know, um, with anxiety and with um, certain, you know, mental health challenges and with feelings of inadequacy, really a lot. And, and all of, there's so much pain and trauma that's coming to the surface. So you could look at that and you could say, wow, what has happened, right? So the older generation would say, what's wrong with these kids? What's wrong with this? What, they're so fragile, they can't, we, we were able to handle so much more, right? Our, our bandwidth was greater, our threshold for pain and for disruption was much greater. What's wrong with these kids that they're so weak, that they're so vulnerable, that they, 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 they you know, there's, they, they lack agency, they lack, um, they lack uh, you know, um, the ability to just move on and deal with life and suck it up. And Resilience. Here, yes, exactly, resilience. But, but here too, again, if you, if, I, don't, I don't think Yossi mentioned this particular point, but you know, the, there's a beautiful Torah of the Alter Rebbe, and the Rebbe spoke about it a lot, which is that one of the ways, you know, which is that the, the source of... Um, Saras, if you think about it, so there's a beautiful idea, and I actually included, and I actually have a new book out, and I include a chapter about this there. Perhaps I'll share a minute about that later. But the the, the same letters for nega is oineg. If you rearrange the letters, nega means affliction, oineg is deep pleasure, and the idea is that that saras was a blotch that appeared and emerged on the skin, and so at face value, it looks like the ultimate. The ultimate um, ailment is one where your 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 body can't contain it, and it actually is so all encompassing that it emerges on your skin. But the way Hasidus looks at it is very differently. Is that 
that the beginning of the process of healing can only happen when that pain surfaces on your skin, because that's when you're alerted to it, and that's when you can see it, and that's when you can deal with it. And it's your body's way of saying that internally we're all healthy, but we've pushed, we've surfaced the problem, and now it's 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 now we can deal with it. So it's very interesting because Mashiach is actually called a tsarua, someone who has tsaras. And there's a story of the Talmud where Mashiach was encountered and he was taking off his bandages. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that the era of Mashiach is like tsaras in the sense that that finally we begin what wasn't was what what, what we couldn't do for thousands of years of millennia of, of our of our history is we can start to excavate and surface the underlying issues. That, that we always had, but now the process of healing begins. And that's what's happening. There's a certain transparency. There's a certain new era where, where, where we're able to deal with things um, with open eyes and we're able to deal with them in a very real and authentic manner. Quick interruption here for a moment with Anchor. Thank you for listening and we'll be right back. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for listening. And now back to today's episode. So to some extent, Saras represents authenticity. It represents that what was inside is now coming outside. And only now can we begin to really tackle it. So maybe that's one way of understanding that specific area of uh, current, of the current, you know, current uh, society. Anyways, just a thought. I love it. Can I ask you a question? What did this research look like for you? I mean, there's no file that you can search uh, everything the Rebbe said on positivity or like how much time did this actually take? What did this research, I'm curious to hear more about that that's whole right. um, journey. That's an excellent question. Um, that is a big, uh, yeah, it's very hard to research the, the Rebbe because again, like, well, now there's more resources out there, but it's getting more easy, but um, Gem is definitely an amazing, amazing resource through the interviews. I actually worked on books with them. The first books that I did publish were with Gem. It was called Seeds of Wisdom. And so I went through maybe a thousand interviews, the 30, 40 page interviews, um, firsthand accounts with people in the Rebbe. So that was an amazing resource. Another, of course, is that and I'm, this is literally what I do. Whenever I hear a good story, I always, always write it down and I file it away. So over the years, I have a lot, a lot of good material. As far as sikhas, that's that's a little more straightforward. That's easier to research because, you know, we know what the Rebbe spoke about. And we basically know where through search engines and, and there are various individuals who are incredibly, incredibly knowledgeable. Um, so it's about what I try to do is construct um, is to use a lot of story because that's what I, I like to do, like in Seeds of Wisdom and others in the Time to Heal, which is a, the Rebbe's response to loss and tragedy. I did this too. I think people learn best when they learn through a narrative, through a story, because there's a real person, there's a real situation, and, and somehow the lesson is much more vivid and resonant. So that's what I tried to do here too. And one of the nicest pieces of feedback I got was from Professor Susan Handelman. She's a, a professor in Bar Ilan. And what she said she loved about the book was that it's it, it's basically a lot of it is actually the Rebbe's own words, but framed with narrative. And she said books can go in either direction. Either they're all, it's just direct quotes from the Rebbe, you know, ad infinitum, like just everything is quote, quote, quote. And it's, it's a harder read because, you know, 
you know, even, even, even in positivity bias, what I would do is I would take a letter of the Rebbe and I would take out three sentences and I'll just highlight the power of those three sentences. If I would have included the whole letter, chances are, I don't think the impact would have been nearly as much because when you read, the Rebbe's letters are all in, invaluable. They're precious and priceless. But sometimes we don't realize or recognize their power because we read so many of them or we read them in their entirety. And that's a big mistake. Sometimes just one sentence, two, three sentences is a whole way of living, a whole way of thinking. So that was one example. And, and basically other books of the Rebbe are just complete adaptations where you don't hear the Rebbe's voice. And I have to say there were many instances where, I, and I, my editor and I worked hard on this, where you know, I, he said, no, Mendel, I want you to use more of your voice, he said. I want, you know, you know you're, you're right. just too much of the rest. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I said, I thought long and hard about how I could say the same thing. And I came to the conclusion, like, it's incomparable. Because the way the Rebbe says it, there's sometimes maybe it's it's more direct, right? The Rebbe is just direct. There's no, there's no niceties about it. It's not, the Rebbe's not, it might not be poetic, but it's it's soul to soul. And, and you can't beat that. And so ultimately that that's why I, I use so much text that actually comes from the Rebbe. And, and Susan Handelman said she loved that because there is something, at least she's from an academic point of view, there's something so much more authentic about hearing the Rebbe speaking in his own voice. And I, I, I genuinely mean it that on, on every level, the way the Rebbe spoke was there was no ambiguity, but it was so kind. It was so firm. It was so loving, but it was so direct. That unique balance and mix is, I think, very rare. And I, I haven't seen people speak about that enough, that the Rebbe's right. communication was, 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 had struck every single, every single part of its listener. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that, that why was- do you, Why do you, let me ask you a question. What do you think the reason the Rebbe was so, in fact, so positive? Like, I mean, I know the Rebbe is a tzaddik, we're, you know, he's not like one of us, obviously, but- most people that are positive either worked really hard on themselves. Some people, it's nature, you know, they have that just going for them. You know, we positive psychology talks about that a little bit. Right. And we know that Thurber went through a lot. He, had a, he did, you know, if you look back, you would say he had a tough life in some regard. And why do you think this was something that was his go-to? Like, his, it almost seemed like it was natural. This is what the Rebbe saw first. Very, very good. That's a great question. So first of all, um, that's actually, in the introduction, I include uh, an amazing anecdote about this. I was really so happy to come across, but the Rebbe shared very little about his life, as we know. That's what makes it very, very hard to write about the Rebbe, because so, almost all of what we know about the Rebbe is not firsthand. But the, on one occasion, the Rebbe told the Hasid, um, Rabbi Yunik, the Rebbe said that I worked on myself to see things positively, otherwise I couldn't have survived. And I find that to be very moving. You're absolutely right that, of course, we're trying to understand how, what we can learn from the Rebbe. And so we're trying to, in a certain sense, leave the, the tzitkos element, because of course, at that level, we, it's incomprehensible. There's no, there's, no, there's no point of reference, no frame of reference for us. But, but that statement is a very human statement. That's the Rebbe talking in a moment of candid, you know, a, a candor saying, I, I, it's not natural. I worked on myself. I believe there's even references to where the Rebbe says about the Friedrich Rebbe, that the Friedrich Rebbe was naturally a Mara Levana. The Rebbe, Friedrich Rebbe was more optimistic in nature, whereas the Rebbe himself was more Mara Shechera, was actually more melancholy, uh, or, or however you best translate that. I, I'm 99% I'm, I'm sure that, that that's, uh, I, have that, I have a source for that, basically. 
the point is that that makes this all the, all the more inspiring. That's what makes the book so much more, I think, impactful. Because if the Rebbe were to naturally be a happy-go-lucky, positive, you know, everything is good and all that, and not, you know, not, not discern, very often discernment comes with melancholy. Because when you're so, you have such a critical eye, such a, such an ability to, by, when I say critical eye, I don't mean negative. I mean that, you, you know, a critic, what's a critic? A critic is able to really see, to really pick something apart. When you have that nature, it's very hard to, 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 to ignore the negative detail that's all around. So I think actually you touched on something really important. For the Rebbe, it wasn't a matter of personality as much as perspective, and it really wasn't life circumstances. It was a choice that the Rebbe made constantly. Again, as you said, the Rebbe's life re reads like really a very challenging life. The Rebbe did not lead a life of privilege and prosperity and peace in the normal objective standards. The Rebbe lived through two world wars, a typhus epidemic, a refugee crisis in Ukraine. One of the few things the Rebbe did say about his mother was how she reacted and how incredible she was during that time when there was a refugee crisis. The Rebbe had a you know, family that were ill. The Rebbe lost his grandmother and other very close family members, including brother-in-law and sister-in-law in the camps. And the Rebbe's own father, as we know, um, was taken, was, was forcibly exiled and eventually passed away due to his, you know, due to the hardships of exile. There's even a, a, a note where the Rebbe once said, the Rebbe wrote to his own father, I'll never forgive myself for not having done more to get you out of, of your situation. And, and we know that it was impossible for the Rebbe to do anything else, but the Rebbe seems carried that guilt and that burden with him. And that must have been excruciating. Uh, on top of that, the Rebbe was separated from his mother for 20, for some 20 years, a great, a great amount of time. And then the Rebbe also, on, on another level, the Rebbe went to University of Berlin. The Rebbe's own professor became a Nazi a Nazi, uh, you know, a Nazi to some extent. And the Rebbe saw Europe, the Rebbe saw, you know, from a, from a, from a different place, from an intellectual, philosophical point of view, the Rebbe saw a world that it seemed to be going in the right direction, completely, completely derailed. And then the Rebbe came to America. If you add to that the, 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 the weight of the assimilation, the rampant assimilation that was going on at that time, which, which really affected the health of many of the tzaddikim of that time. And then you add to that, the Rebbe absorbing the pain, the anxieties, the fears, the loss of millions of people over 40 years or plus 50, 60 years, because most people did not write good news. They wrote about the challenges of life. And then you add to that, the Rebbe didn't have children. And we don't know what that could have meant or how that, the Rebbe, you know, what that meant. But, but the Rebbe himself in a few letters, and I include one in the positivity bias, and I think it's so powerful. The Rebbe is talking to what I call a chronic fetcher, somebody who just was probably fetching regularly. And, um, and the Rebbe wrote to them, you know, they wrote about how miserable their life was. And the Rebbe said, you know, the Rebbe said, in your letter, I think you, meant, you mentioned that you have children. Let's just stop and dwell on that for a moment. You know how many people, the Rebbe says, despite trying so hard, we're not, uh, we're not blessed with the blessing of children. I find it so moving and very hard to ignore the fact that the Rebbe is at least to us speaking autobiographically from a place of, of a personal knowledge and experience and trying to highlight the simple gift of children. So you're absolutely right. So it comes down to effort, but it's more than just that. And this is, I think we could, maybe this is one of the concluding points. I think more than that, it's not just, it's not, psych it's not just positive psychology. Here's where I would say it's positive theology. 
there's a very big difference between positive psychology and positive theology, as I would call it. Positive psychology is the understanding and the science that goes behind the findings that living a life of positivity is actually beneficial. It's much better for your immune system. It's much better for your longevity. It's much better for your mental health. You know, there's so much research. For example, the research I came across not long ago, that people who are more positively minded live between 11 and 15% longer than their pessimistic peers. I mean, that's mind blowing data. What wouldn't we do in 2022 to live longer? We're doing so much, right? If I came out with a pill tomorrow and said, if you take this, you'll live between 11 and 15% longer, I'd be an international instant sensation. Um, so, and then, you know, Alzheimer's or dementia is prolonged, is put off actually um, in people that have more of a positive mindset. Though, so we know so much about how relationships, strong relationships are important for longevity and good health. And relationships are very much related, I believe, to positivity, right? We know we, we're attracted to people who are more positive and, and, and we're actually, we distance ourselves from people who are more negative if, if we can. All of the above is, makes a very compelling case to, to buy into positivity because it's the better route, because it's the way that you will live a better and longer life. That's not what positivity bias is about, right? Positivity bias is therefore really not a book of, if I'm being very candid, it's not a book of psychology yeah. as such. It's really a book of theology. And every one of the chapters contains the philosophical and theological and spiritual foundations for the ideas that were manifest then in all those stories, letters, vignettes, encounters, and exchanges. And that's the source of the Rebbe's positivity. Now, to be fear, in Judaism, you could you could be anything. You know, I think the Friedrich Rebbe would say, like, someone said the, the Friedrich Rebbe said basically all the good, the best things in socialism, capitalism, Marxism, all the best of them, their truths upon which they are built are found in Torah. And I use that just to say that you know you could be a very cynical Jew and 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 find sources in Torah and Talmud for that. I mean, we know so many. You could be um, a very judgmental Jew, unfortunately, and justify your judgmentalism in Judaism. That's a fact. You know, the question is, and this is, I would put it this way. How do you really know someone? You know how you really know someone? You go into their house. Which room in the house? You go in, you go into the library and you see what books do they have in their cells. But more importantly, you see which books are more worn than others. More importantly, you see when you open those books, we're, you know, we are the stickers what are the passages they've highlighted that they want to come back to? That's how you get to know someone intimately, right? What book do they have at their bedside table? That's how you get to know someone intimately. So it's not what, in Judaism also, it's, it's where the underline is, right? And different tzaddikim, different gedolim, different movements, from Musr to Chassidus and anything in between, place the emphasis else in different passages on different, there's a different knech, right? And uh, there are many examples of this. We, we, you know, there's one very moving story. I, I'll get to the, the chase, the cut, the, the 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 essence of it. But there was a a chassid from a different community that came to see the rebbe because he couldn't have children. And his rebbe told him that if you want to promise, you have to go to Yenem, which was the way they referred to the rebbe. And in the private audience, after the rebbe blessed him and gave him a promise, a haftacha, the rebbe asked, "What is your rebbe speaking about in Torah lately?" So he said that he did a siyum. And he mentioned the text, the famous quote that the, even the wicked among the Jewish people, even the sinners among Israel, are filled with mitzvahs 
like a pomegranate filled with seeds. And the question that his rabbi asked is, it's a, obviously it's oxymoronic. It's, it's a self-contradictory statement. If the Talmud refers to these Jews as sinners, how can we then say that they're filled with good deeds like a pomegranate filled with seeds? And the Rebbe grew serious and very emotional, actually. And the Rebbe said, I learned exactly the same Gemara. And I had the opposite question. If, in fact, the Gemara says that here are individuals who are so righteous that they're filled with as many misses as a pomegranate is filled with seeds, how can the Gemara call them Pesha Yisrael, sinners of Israel? An amazing example of how two tzaddikim look at the same text, but they see something very different in that text. So it's a combination of a number of things. The, the Rebbe's, the, the, the positivity always in all those examples, and that's what I worked very hard in positivity bias to demonstrate, stem from positive theology, from the way Torah teaches us the, the essence of things, from the human condition, right? The essence of the human condition is a goodness. That's a Jewish idea. That's a Hasidic idea. And then you talk about history. Is history, um, as uh, who was it? I think it was uh, Joseph Heller wrote, history is a trash bag of history. Uh, history is a, is a trash bag of coincidences blown open by the wind or something. Like basically, is, is, is history random? Or is there, a, is there a rhyme and reason? Is there a design? Is there an architect? And so many of the of the various uh, of these various themes are rooted again in a very important philosophical or spiritual theological principle. So that's where I think the Rebbe's positivity was rooted in. At the same time, I think the Rebbe also, like he told the Chassid, on a different level, worked to ensure that that those ideas were fully integrated, because without it, as he said, he couldn't have survived. I want to finish up with one final question: How are you different today? after putting a book like this together? How has this impacted you personally? So that's a very uh, good question. And it's a very personal question. <laughs> um, some books, I think certain authors write from the inside out and some books and authors write from, as it were, the outside in. In other words, sometimes a person has a, a memoir. They had such experiences and, and they're sharing, you know, their insights that's from right. like Dr. Edith Eager and The Gift or The Choice. Um, I'm asked this question a lot when I talk about a time to heal. Baruch Hashem, that book was was very much did, was not born out of personal experience, <clears throat> but actually at the time I was working at Chabad.org as an editor, and uh, it was it was a particularly horrific six months where terrible things had happened within the Jewish community, from the kidnapping of a boy in Borough Park, and then a, a terrible massacre in Itamar. And I, I started to research a topic to write articles for the readership. And that's how that book was born. Eventually, there were so many articles. I said, this is more than, you know, an article or two. This is a book. Um, with Positivity Bias, I shared with you very much the inspiration. But, you know, I think we, I think, I think we all, I think we all, I think we all struggle to some extent, right? With, 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 with um, the themes we touched on over the past hour how to deal with people who might be difficult, how to deal with the difficult sides of our own self and how to reconcile and how to live with those contradictions, how to, how to, you know, um, how to inter interact with our fellow, you know, Jews on shlichas. All, all of these things are, are very much part and parcel of any, any journey. But for me, the way it impacted me is that um, I think when you're, with as with many ideas, when you, when you know them, it's one thing, but when you speak about them and when you share them, somehow you become a part of them and they become more a part of you. So 
I think that's really the simple answer. The book is aspirational for me, to be very clear. To put in simple terms, it's aspirational. It's the it's it's the type of person I want to be. I've written it as the type of person I want to be, not the type of person that I necessarily am, either naturally or through hard work. But it's the type of person I want to be. It's it's these are ideas that I I'm so that are so resonant and I feel are so true. But but the process of integration is lifelong journey. I think for everybody, and it's it's actually quite interesting because there are times where I'm struggling with something. And here I'll give a shout out to my mother, who's a huge fan of the book. And she's a very she's a very discerning reader, actually. So I was very happy to know that she enjoyed it. But she will sometimes say to me when I'm when I'm cheering with her, as only a son does with their mother, about a particular communal challenge or personal challenge. So she'll say something like, "I think you should read a good book called Positivity Bias." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And she'll she'll and she'll you know and she'll say you know this chapter or that chapter you know, and she's right. And, and when I do that, and I think this is quite an interesting thing to share, it's like when, when you're reading a passage that you yourself wrote, but yet suddenly you're reading it at a different time in your life or through the lens of a particular experience, that's where the real work happens. That's where the real magic takes place. And so, yes, once again, it's aspirational. It, these ideas were so compelling to me. They were so gripping. They, they, they literally... I, I feel like there's, you know, maybe sometimes you choose a topic and sometimes a chop topic chooses you. I feel like this topic chose me. Again, it's not because naturally, I mean, I, I okay, people will say that I maybe I, I'd like to believe, but I think it's probably true that I'm quite positive. But be that as it may, it's aspirational and it's a lifelong journey of integration. And there's no question that on the practical side of things, it's been very impactful like how I speak and how I will, you know, refer to things, how I'll, how I'll present ideas. And the way my, 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 my method of speaking, I think is, is influenced a lot by the chapters of positive language or, or, or things like that. But anyways, again, aspirational and with the, with the intention and the commitment to a lifetime of integration, hopefully. Okay. So I think that's a great lesson for all of us that we can look at this book as not just something that's good reading, but it's something that we can keep working on and aiming for. And as the author himself says. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just finish with one thing. I was very inspired at the retreat. There was a, a young woman who came over to me and she said that she read the book a few years ago and it was very impactful. And then like some time ago, she fell into a very deep depression and, and a rut and she decided to reread it. And she said, ever since, she said, every day I sit down at the end of the day and I write down one positive thing that happened to me today. It's based on, I think, dwelling on chapter title, dwelling on the positive. And she said, instead of just writing one thing each day, I decided that I would add another thing each day. So day two, I wrote two positive things. Day three, three. She said, last night was day 49 and today's day 50. And I was like, wow. And she said, I want to tell you something. She said, you'd be surprised about how many good things happen to you if you only stop and take notice. And I think that was to me really brought to life what I intended to hopefully achieve in the practice of that chapter. Because what I sensed and understood from her is that she's now on the lookout for good things. She's on the lookout for things to later record. And so she notices so much more. Someone held the door open for her. That's a good thing. The person could have just walked right by her. That's something that happens to so many times a day. We just don't notice that we don't record it. And, and therefore it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, just it's lost on us. So yes, very much the book is maybe interesting reading, 
but it's much more so, much more so, a practical, hopefully a practical tool for transformation. And here too, I just want to conclude by saying that, you know, you can reread it like she did and like I do. And, you know, someone once asked me, you know, why do we read the Torah every year again? Isn't it the same Torah? And the answer is yes, the Torah is the same Torah. And um, we read it not because the Torah changes, but because we do. Right. And so just like if you're a child and you read a book and then you reread it 20 years later, you sometimes think, wow, is that the same book? I have such a different recollection and I didn't realize the depth and I didn't realize how actually it connects so deeply to something in my life. That, too, is the way I think, um, you know, positive advice can be read, at least because we change and our situations in life change. And suddenly a passage or words of the Rebbe that we that sort of just passed us by will stick because they are so much more pertinent to a situation we're experiencing in the here and now. Love that. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And um, I wish you the best of luck. If you could just tell us the name of your next book so we can know where to get that if we're curious thank, to purchase thank, that. Thank you so much. And, and uh, can I end with a compliment? Um, yeah. I do this a lot. And I think you have excellent questions and you're a great listener. And I think that's a real right. skill for someone who does podcasts because usually people who do podcasts, they have a lot to say. They're very deep and thoughtful people. And so there's a lot they could be sharing even during the actual interview. But what you've done, I think, tremendously is really created the space to allow, you know, stream of consciousness to come forth, hopefully to the benefit of your, of your listeners. And I, you. I think that's a, a, a very specific, but very meaningful compliment. Um, Appreciate that. So the next book is actually, I have it here with me. It's called People of the Word, um, 50 Words That Shaped Jewish Thinking. And it's a co I co-authored it with, uh, with uh, Rabbi Zaman Abraham. And basically, the idea is that the Hebrew language is very different to other languages and that it's not random or arbitrary, but descriptive. So a very fun example is that the word for a dog in Hebrew is kelev. And kelev comes from the two words kulolev all heart, which I think is an incredible description <laughs> for a dog. And the idea is that the Hebrew language is essentially um, essentially the blueprint, the DNA or the code of, of reality, of existence. And so the way to understand reality and existence is through the Hebrew language, which is, which is what Hashem used, as it were, to create the universe. And another dimension of the book is that there are many, many ideas in, uh, there are many, many ideas out there, philosophical ideas, spiritual ideas, practical ideas, that um, are very non-Jewish, but Jewish, they've, they've, somehow in, they've somehow spilled into the Jewish lexicon and way of thinking. And very often, the way to see the distinction between the Jewish way of thinking and the, and the wider, maybe the secular or non-Jewish way of thinking is through the Hebrew word that describes this the idea of this topic, which unfortunately has been mistranslated, uh, misunderstood for millennia. So with some of the classic examples that the Rebbe highlighted was, for example, tshuva, which is, which is understood as repentance, which suggests the idea that I've become so corrupted that I need to be born again, so to speak, or the idea of turning over a new leaf represents that, you know, my current incarnation or iteration, there's something wrong with me, and I need to be born into something other than the person I am. So teshuv actually means to return, and it's, it's exactly what we were speaking about earlier. It highlights the fact that we have uh, an essential goodness or godliness that's always remains intact. And it's really about realigning ourselves with that essence. And the Hebrew word tashuv means to return to that place or to the land of your soul, so to speak. And that's a radically, radically different idea and a very redemptive and empowering idea. But again, it's something that we have lost touch with because of the mistranslations that have crept into our, 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 our intellectual vocabulary. 
that's another aspect. And then the idea of 50 words that shape Jewish thinking is that language actually doesn't just express the values of a particular culture, it actually informs the values of that particular culture. So the way in which Judaism, through the word tzedakah, teaches about giving, which is that it's the just thing to do, not just the right thing to do, or the good thing to do, actually, I argue, based on certain research, is what impacts Jewish giving. And as, if you follow the data, Jewish people, and this is not um, this is not a point of chauvinism, it's just the facts are that Jewish people are much more generous per capita than, their, than, the, than, the, than, the, than the people in wider societies. For example, in the UK, 57% of people give um, charity every year in the Jewish community, and it increases in the religious community. Um, 93%. It's a very big difference. For example, in America, there's something called the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and they chart the hot, the largest gifts, the 50 largest gifts given in America every year. Um, I looked into one year, I think it was 2011, six out of the top 10 gifts were made by Jewish people, and 19 out of the top 50 by Jews. I think that's radical. It's something really powerful. You know, we tend to pat ourselves on the back about all the, you know, Nobel Prize winners that we have. And I, and I think in, I think in addition, at least, if not instead, because at the end of the day, Nobel Prize winners comes from from intelligence, and and whereas we should be talking about our, our high levels of giving, because I think that that's that's a value system, and that's something that actually doesn't mean that Jewish people are are, are nature by nature any better or different. It just means that our values and our culture, which as I argue has been shaped by our language and the ideas embedded in that language. Is something that everyone can learn from. So that's in a few words about. And where the book. can we? I love that. Can where can we read? Where can we purchase this book? Um, it's gonna be. It's gonna be. Uh, it's gonna be on Amazon in the next two weeks, and it's gonna be in all fine Judaica stores, uh, and maybe even beyond in Hashem within the next two weeks. Excellent. So we will give me that information so we could put it into our show notes, and people can purchase it. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I know many people will learn from this, and I really appreciate it. I'm wishing you tremendous success at uh, at really creating the space and this wonderful instrument of positivity, of light, of healing, of understanding, at which I can tell you, if impacts people way above and beyond, you can even appreciate both quantitatively and qualitatively. Thank you so much. Okay, all the best. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you have any questions or comments and would like to discuss this further with me, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. Wishing you a wonderful, happy Freilich and Hanukkah for you, your family, and your friends. Have a great day.